1: there is a place that's always here, that's in us and that holds us, that is okayness. It's just a relief to finally land there and from there to feel happy and sad and from there to witness the horrors in the world and the exquisite beauty in the world, to to really be okay with all of it. It's that dance, which is why I call it the artistry of that polarity, like to know that everything is fundamentally okay and to address all the fucked up things in the world at the same time, that those are not mutually exclusive.
2: Hey everyone, it's Raghu from Mind Rolling back again. And I'm happy to have uh, really old friend Sarah Marshank, and we haven't talked to each other or seen each other uh, since Ramdas left, basically yep and uh, you know, happy to have you welcome.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here
2: so i've I've had fun because uh, Sarah sent me a couple of books, one of which was her uh, a memoir right? And the other, which is uh, a method, a methodological book, if there's such a word, I like that. But uh, called selfistry, that has some really, uh, I think, uh, important revelations. Just interpreting what we all already know in a way that you can catch on where you maybe didn't before. Something can make sense, which is why this is all. So lovely. Um, But the fun part was, of course, reading the memoir because I didn't know anything about that, okay?
1: Okay. I mean,
2: oh, my God. I don't know how far you want to get into it, but you know what? The reality is that this memoir, which is called Being Self-ish, which is good, I like that, uh, is, uh, I don't know if you would get the, uh, the guidebook, you know, which is a guide to embodying timeless wisdom, spiritual wisdom. I don't know, because you have had a, a tremendous wealth of experiences and suffering. And so it informs how you're framing what people can perhaps think of and a, a little bit of a new perspective to help get along on a day to day. So let's start from the beginning. Okay, Just Happy. Yeah, you grew up uh, where and when and, and what was the societal atmosphere at the time? And uh, yeah, go ahead.
1: Well, first of all, I, I just want to say what you just articulated is so helpful in that as we remember, you know, as we're walking each other home, as we're remembering that all frameworks and methodologies and traditions were born out of a context of the person or the people's and their particular life circumstances, even though we could say there's a generic universal definition of suffering, um, the uniqueness of each person's particular circumstances, how could it not inform the methodologies and the tools and the practices? So, Um, And I love naming that for people because Mm. it gives us permission to find the ones that we resonate with if they're all really walking each other home. So, yeah, yeah. so I love that. Um, so my particular circumstance, born in 1963 in Detroit, Michigan, um, from uh, Eastern European lineage. My family all left Eastern Europe before World War II, my immediate family. Um, I And many of my family also died in the war. And, um, yeah, in, I was raised... In
2: camps, you say?
1: um in different, in a variety of different um, circumstances, mm. but obviously my immediate um, or my grandparents immigrated before the war. They're from Belarus and Ukraine and Russia, um, and and my family name actually, um, my father's side was the rabbinical um, leaders of Poland at the time. Kind oh, really? of cool, and I've been there, so that's like the details of where i was born and
2: when? Yeah. And uh but i'm i'm most interested in the uh, cuz we could really relate with the jewish heritage. I've been i've been talking to a lot of jewish people lately.
1: Interesting.
2: Uh, yeah, i just talked to a, a young jewish woman who is from mumbai. Oh. Okay. And it's the last of the, you know, maybe 3,000 Jews from that area. Right? I, I had never met anyone, so I said, i got to have you on a podcast, and we got to know each other a little bit. Oh, um, yeah, so definitely coming from that tradition, which certainly many, many people, because of the adventurous quality of, of their uh, incarnation, uh, Jews that went over to the east, and how many do we have? Some incredible teachers: Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg, and on and, and Ramdas. Uh, right. So,
0: exactly. yeah.
2: So, how did that shape you?
1: Well, I think more than anything, and um, the value of education, and the value of being willing to investigate and interrogate and explore and adventure was kind of built into my DNA and into my family system and the way that I was raised. So I always felt like I could figure anything out if I just applied myself to it. And I think that served me well when I hit my pocket of suffering and really needed to figure out why I was here and what it was all about. And, yeah. and I did go on to become an Orthodox Jew in my later 20s as part of my exploration in the book. I moved to Mansi. I studied in yeshiva. I really did go back to my roots, so to speak. And um, and I think that's when organized religion per se started to break down for me. And I really got to see that even if there was an essential truth embedded in Judaism, which I believe I, I have discovered, and Christianity and Islam um, and Hinduism and Buddhism, that um, that there was something about the container, yeah, you know, like we were talking about earlier, the context that didn't resonate for me um, being a child of the 70s and in a Western society um, post Vietnam. And so I feel like my longing to sort it out for myself. Um, my Jewish heritage gave me the courage to do that and gave me you know the the investigative chops so to speak like I have a real rabbinical mind in a way mm. um but the real work started when I finally sat down and shut up and began to <clears throat> meditate and pray in earnest from my own heart mm. um
2: didn't yeah before you went back into it into in an Orthodox manner, had you discovered Eastern um, traditions?
1: I started <clears throat> I started practicing yoga when I was 19. I was a student at UC Santa Cruz
2: hmm.
1: um, but that was more just yoga asana, not so much yoga philosophy. So no, I hadn't given it any earnest, practice until I moved to Oregon and went into retreat for that, those 10 years. Hmm.
2: Yeah. Tell, talk about that. And and of course, talk about, I mean, one person runs pretty much throughout a lot of the book is a man named Sam, yeah, who seems like a very complex character. And I might have, if I had known you, I might have said something, shall we say, not so nice
1: yeah you and many others (laughs) but Uh, he sam was another conservative well he was probably less raised less jewish than you and i were from new york um Mm, uh... um, yeah, very interesting character and very, very fierce and dedicated to his own enlightenment. And so like any tradition in any monastery or any relationship, there's always a dark side and a light side. And um, what I appreciate about Sam was he created the conditions and an opportunity for me to really practice without, here's, here's the dilemma, without a teacher, pros and cons. Right.
2: Well, he was your teacher.
1: No, he was no? my peer. Yeah. Oh. He was really my fellow monk. He had his ideas and his beliefs and his suppositions, but he and and though he wanted me to carry those as well, his fundamental injunction was always prove me wrong. Find out for yourself and here's I'm going to create the conditions for you to do that cuz if you sit down and shut up long enough, the truth will arise in you.
2: That sounds like a teacher. Sorry. You know, anyone who says if this happens and if you do, you know, you are speaking as if you know something someone else doesn't.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. I can, (laughs) you know, I can hang with him as that as well. He definitely played that role. Um, But I, uh, yeah yeah and
2: and you were married, although uh in, in a very unique way, shall we say
1: we were fellow monks we um we felt very much aligned in our quest for truth, and we supported each other a hundred percent in that and in that regard we we were united and um we were never formally married we we never had sex we were both celibate for that all that time that I was with you know, living with him. And there were other people that practiced with us and spent time with us, but um, it really was a beautiful, um, I mean, it was hard lifestyle, but I had full permission to meditate for hours every day, do yoga, pranayama, study what I wanted to study and spend time in nature. And it really was a full on monastic, immersive lifestyle we didn't have a television we didn't go into town we didn't you know engage really with the outside world hardly at all so
2: Mm.
1: it was pretty Mm. radical yes
2: and you were in your 30s then
1: that was my my 30s yeah the decade of my 30s it was also the 90s and my stepkids to this day joke with me about all the music i missed and you know (laughs) during that decade
2: yeah yeah wow so it sounds like at that that point, the, that, that ten years as much as I got, um, was the most informative time of your life because you got to uh, really, really face the insides, the guts of yours. And you had other traumatic events around pregnancy and so on. Um, what led you out of that and, and or what happened first? What happened after that stage?
1: After the 10 years? Yeah. Well, I think it's the same question what happened that I that, that inspired me to leave and come back into the world and um, yeah, you know, it's interesting because I feel like, the echo of Ram Das's teaching from role to soul. You know, I talk about in the book how we used to listen to cassette tapes of Ram Das because Sam was really into Ram Das and thought. You know, Ram Dass was really a very serious teacher and practitioner, and very wise. Um, until he got, until after he stroked, and he got more bodhisattvic in his ways, mm. and um, and Sam Sam thought he maybe was going off track there. And yet, I had this really deep resonance with the the injunction to go from role to soul in my meditation practice and cultivating the witness. Which is, and we can talk about that more, my conversations with Ram Das about that, and how the framework of self history is is the same as what he's talking about in a different in a different template, you could say, right? Mm-hmm. But it, while I was in retreat, that was you could say that was my main practice. And then once I felt stable in the soul part and really, um, understanding the perspective of role without rooting my identity into it, um, nine 11 happened. Mm -hmm. And that was the one event that actually, because Sam's family was from New York and his money was, um, was, you know, generational wealth, um, based upon his grandfather's investment in real estate in New York. So, When 9-11 happened, his parents actually did call us to let us know that they were okay and the properties were okay. And something in my heart just broke open when I heard what had happened. And I I told Sam I needed to go to a hotel so I could find a television so that I could see it. It was just this kind of... Mm magnetism. And then from then on, it took a few years, but I realized that what I had the privilege of of attempting and realizing or experiencing in retreat, that it really, for me, and this is where Sam and I differed, for him, his journey was to stay and to continue to practice. And my journey was to bring that practice into the world and and offer it the opportunity to come to fruition through connection through relationship through service rather yeah. than just a, the monastic way
2: Right. Mm. yeah and so you went into the next part of your journey in your 40s right yep yep what was that
1: so that was that was when I met Stephen, my husband, who you know, um, and uh, yeah, I found my way back into the world. I, I was trained as an educator, I had a master's degree in education before I went to be with Sam for those years, and also was a licensed massage therapist. So when I came out of retreat, I got a job as a massage therapist, which was perfect because I could still be quiet and slow and silent and mm. meditative while touching people, mm. and um, which was super beautiful. And, and my husband is a, a family man and a world traveler and also a deep spiritual practitioner, a psychonaut, um, also knew Ram Das back in the day, um, produced a film, Prognosis, um, with Ram Das in it. And so, you know, Steve, he was just connected to all these really, beautiful teachers and and systems and helped me kind of understand what had happened for me in those years with Sam and create an understanding of how they connected with other lineages and teachings. And, um, and then I just found my way into teaching again and um, creating this body of work pretty much organically. It wasn't something I set out to do. It was I t- started telling my story And then um, I started developing my career again as a teacher and as an educator, very interested in how we raise young people, where's the role for mindfulness, meditation, critical thinking around um, spiritual traditions, the difference between religion and spirituality, social activism, and now, right, in 2023, and I loved your your podcast, your conversation with your granddaughter, and now... Stephen and I have three granddaughters that are, you know, 9, 11, and 13, and really considering as an elder, as a grandmother, as an educator, how are we raising these next generations to engage in the meta crisis that we're living in, in these times. So I would say it's like a tapestry, a weaving of all that was, and the threads that actually make sense to bring forward in these times are really strong in me, and the ones that aren't as essential, feel like they're falling away. And, mm. um, and self-esteem was born.
2: Hmm. Yeah, my 13-year-old my Zoe is... Uh, yeah, and it's not how she was... Uh, it's just more evidence of karma and re- reincarnation and yeah. whatever she brought in. You know, the, a major thing is like curiosity... And and connecting with that, and that opens up all the doors to be able to look at all, of, you know, what's going on in in all of our really tough situations, from the environment to the to the uh, polarization in this country, and yeah. uh, you know. It, it, we have you know just have and have not and racial i mean we go on and on and she had a point of view for all of it it was like mind-blowing
1: it was it was gorgeous yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: so yeah. okay so uh self yeah all
1: right
2: i guess you should say how did you come up with that term
1: well <laughs> oh. The term came to me because the the language that I was using um, was self and no self. So the Buddhist, you know, term of no self. Mm. And then the self in the West, which is, you know, the icon um, that yeah. we worship. Yeah. So the polarity, I really got excited about just playing with the polarity between self and no self and how um, in certain traditions one is valued Over the other, one is viewed as primary or superior to the other. And what I realized in my own interior and in my own life was they are actually codependent, co-arising, co-mingling, and that to diminish one over the other was to incur suffering. And so I really wanted to speak to the dynamic relationship between self and no-self. And Mm. so that's where selfistry, the artistry of the self. And yeah. no self,
2: yeah. That's cool, cool yeah. term. So uh, the whole, uh, of course, this is how it opens. I spent well, it doesn't open, but how self-istry came to be. I spent my 30s sitting on a meditation cushion, determined to bring about an inner shift that would finally make me happy. And then you go in to describe what happiness means to you. And I thought I'd let you and. Uh, everybody else no cuz i had an interesting incident with maharaji one day Nimkaroli baba when my father came to india out of the blue almost and my brother and i were there my wow. future wife and he said i'm coming and then he came and mm. we didn't have shall we say we didn't have a great relationship I knew he loved me and it wasn't like really crazy bad, uh, but he was a tyrant, you know, and so we had a lot of issues. But I, it wasn't like I wasn't writing him, going, I can't, you cannot believe what I am sitting in front of this human. I've never met a human like, you know, stuff like that. So that brought him over. So, um, anyhow, all, all kinds of the usual stuff with Neem Karoli Baba, with Maharaji happened. Where you immediately knew he knew absolutely everything, not just what uh, past, but present, future, all of it. And you were taken into a completely altered uh, s- state, which is really, that's not even the right word. You were home. Mm. I just recently uh, did a podcast actually um, with Danny Goldman, an old friend who wrote to. Uh, uh, emotional Intelligence, which everybody should read, by the way. I keep saying Agreed. that. Whenever I s- say Danny's name, I go, you've got to do that. Um, so um, he did a book with Tokni Rinpoche, A Great Lama. Mm. And in it, uh, Tokni talked about uh, what essence love is, which is that thing behind it all. Yeah. And he said, and this just really got me, there's a sense of okayness oh. is what that is. Yeah. I love that so much. Anyhow, there I am Gorgeous. with my father. And Maharaji says to him, Uh, why did you why did you come to India? And he said, which was more rational than almost any time. Maharaji never talked to people and said anything. He would ask them questions, and it was just a weird thing that, you know, completely non rational. My father said, Well, I came to see. My, how my sons were doing. Mm. This is why he came, you know. And uh, and Maharaji said, well, how are they doing? He said, well, they seem happy. And Maharaji said, happiness is everything. I have had that contemplation, you know, for all of these years and come to the understanding of... Uh, Deep, that's why I, I told this story of Tokni Rinpoche, of the okayness, yeah. of the deep okayness of what happiness, that's what happiness is. It's not, as you describe, it's not one day I'm happy, next day I'm sad. You know, it's not an emotional thing. It's way underneath that. But go ahead, talk about it in terms of your, your own experience with um, ultimate happiness.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. I think what you shared really speaks to it. Um, And my sense of it as well is that there is a place that's always here, that's in us, and that holds us. That is okayness. It's exquisite. It's, 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 yeah, it's just this, sometimes I say to people that it's just a relief to finally land there and from there to feel happy and sad and from there to witness the horrors in the world and the exquisite beauty in the world to really to really be okay with all of it and not you know, it's it's that dance, which is why I call it the artistry of that polarity, like to know that everything is fundamentally okay and to address all the fucked up things in the world at the same time, that those are not mutually exclusive, that when we rest in the okayness, it doesn't mean we just lie down, you know, in a blissed out state and smile and never get up and do anything. On the contrary, it means that when we do get up and do things, it's coming from this rested okayness and our actions in the world come from a place of love and connection and Mm okayness rather than judgment or attachments or agendas. Mm -hmm. Um, And my experience is that it's a way more beautiful way for me to live and for the people around me who have to live with me. You <laughs> <Yeah>. know?
2: <laughs> I'll second that emotion, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, one other, uh, I imagine this is this particular teaching, which you bring out very early, um, is, is something that's dear to you in terms of a. Pr- of a not even just a practice but a point of view a perspective and that's the teachings of Ramana Maharshi and uh, uh, particularly around who am I and for those of you who don't know uh who he is he's he was a great saint of the last uh, century and uh He was 16 years old and he was like, I don't know what this is, this life, but I'm not moving one more inch until I find out what it's all about. And he lays down on his bed. Remember, 16, right? Teenager. And he just goes, who am I? And he repeats that all night long until he realizes the nature, his nature, his true nature. And then, of course, it, over years it, it took hold, whatever that means, I wouldn't know. Uh, and he he moved to this fantastic place called Theruvam Namalai in South India and has this beautiful Shiva mountain. What's it called?
1: Arunachala.
2: Arunachala. Oh, God, I was there. It was the first holy place I ever went to in India wow. when I was 24. Wow. Um, And... That practice was uh, and is, for many people, a real way to identify the okayness place. right? And yeah, talk about your own connection to him and, and what those teachings mean to you.
1: Yeah, he came to me early on in a dream, and then a book of his that I just used that practice. I think one of the things I loved about my relationship with Sam was we were always looking for Occam's razor, you know, we were always looking for the simplest, most direct path, or the most direct understanding of what's true. And so Ramana's injunction to just keep asking the question, who am I really resonated with me and the Zen meditation type practice I was doing, combined with Ram Dass's teaching of from role to soul. So every time I would sit, I would allow myself to ask the question, who am I? And roles would pop up one, I'm a woman, I'm a teacher, I'm a daughter, I'm, you know, on and on. And I would just keep sinking into, okay, not that. Okay, not that. What else? What else? Right. And and so in my conversation with Ramdas, when I spent the time with him before he died, um, and I was sharing with him that movement from role to soul, it was when Ramdas says I am loving awareness,
2: hmm.
1: to me, for me, that was the soul place. Right? I am Sarah is the self. I am loving awareness is the soul because there's still an I there, there's, still a, there's a sense of me there. But loving awareness itself is the okayness. So it's like, I am Sarah, I am loving awareness, love.
2: <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, you just reminding me of something. We were in, uh, doing, you may have been there at the retreat in Maui, and I'm sitting up there with Ramdas and Krishna Dass one day, and Ramdas starts talking about uh, the constituents of I am loving awareness and going from that I place in your head into the center of your being. And anyhow, he's going on talking about it, and he's and he, and he turns and he looks at Krishna at one point, and goes, you know, right? Right? Or maybe he didn't say that, but it was he was prompting Krishnas in some way. And you know, <laughs> Krishna who can't do stuff just because it's nice to do in any situation Publi- I can't tell you what he said on his on his broadcast uh, of a few Thursdays ago he does that thing every Thursday night yeah. it was phenomenal best thing I, best spiritual teaching I ever heard uh and it was completely profane uh
1: <laughs> another jewish brother right yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah
2: so krishna das when he was prompted in, in, in relative to I am loving awareness, said, I don't know anything about loving awareness. I know Ram, Ram, okay, that's mm-hmm. all I know. and then Ram Dass was sort of taken aback. he like, all these years, you never said a word about it, and then Ram Dass just stopped for a moment and he went, loving awareness, Ram, Ram, yeah, <laughs> something like that, but he, the, the i am left and just the reality of you know what we're talking about is deeply below the eye yeah. but you need an eye to kind of get there and that's the usefulness as you said before you can't throw out uh you you know it's no self and you don't throw out the self because it's a useful servant actually
0: yeah
2: you know that self and and it's not a to me it's not about the, the Buddhist no self thing—it's—it's—it's it's, it's the dropping of attachment, clinging, and aversion. Nice. When those things drop, then you're able to be completely at one in present moment with everyone and everything around you. That's no self, as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I love that. I—I I, one thing I say to to people who I'm walking with um, is that. This notion of even dropping it, right? Sometimes that feels insurmountable for people. So what I like to say is it's 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 a perspective shift in a way. Hmm. And the self-realm, the part of us that ha- there's a lot of different selves inside of here, actually. And one of them is so not interested or able to drop her attachments. But when I'm able to get perspective on her and see her as just a play, right, Leela, just a play of selfhood, then I don't need her to change or do anything, but my attention is rooted in observing her, and then at some point it's just rooted in okayness.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: So I I'd lo- I I'd love to qualify that because sometimes people are like, "Oh, I'll never let go of all my attachments. I'll never, I'll never, it's too hard. How do you do that? How do you do that?" And I just say to them, "Let's just let's just set them down on a table right here for a while and they don't have to go anywhere. They don't have to change and bring your attention here." At yeah. least to the I am loving awareness. Start identifying as the I who is loving awareness and then we'll get then we'll get rid of the I altogether, yeah, really. you know.
2: Yeah. Well, we won't get rid of it, but again, no. we'll get enough spaciousness around it, so we are exactly. not reacting the way we normally do with, uh, you know, input that from people, from yeah. things, from circumstances, whatever it may be.
1: Ancestry,
2: yeah, yeah. everything. Yeah.
1: That's a big one.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you know what turned me on to uh, Ramana Maharshi?
1: What? I mean,
2: aside from I did go to the ashram and I went to his room, in mausoleum, uh, all of it. It's all good. Yeah. I mean, at that stage, actually, I wasn't getting it really, you know, not the way I did after I finally met uh, Maharaji. Um, although I, you know, I had, with Ram Dass, I did get a certain kind of a hit that was very deeply trustful, intuitive
1: yeah.
2: uh, of that space. Beautiful. But then I read the story, there used to be, with Ramana Maharshi. There was this one cow, Gita, can't remember her name. But there was a cow, you know, so there was every ashram around India, nearby or as part of the ashram, there's a cow, go Goshal, I think it's called. But it's cows that are taken care of and, uh, you know, for milk and so on. And uh, this one particular cow, he loved Ramana. Maharshi loved that cow. Have you heard this? The cow used so. to come in to the darshan room, poop on the floor, everything. Complete wow. no-no in Hindu, especially Brahmin culture. And and he'd give it some food, it would hang out in the meditation, and then go back to the cow shed promptly every day. Wow. On its own, with anybody saying, okay, it's time for darshan he the she would come and the way that he treated that cow i mean mm. i'm a big animal lover but whatever it was the purity of love and kindness that that he exemplified to me was way more powerful than the than the practice which wasn't something that attracted me particularly um uh, because i'm less into gyan kind of stuff than I am into bhakti. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not totally true because of the Tibetans that uh, I've been privileged to take teachings from and meet. Um, but yeah, Ramana Maharshi. Absolutely yeah. fantastic. And I love
1: that you brought the animals into the conversation because really, you know, that from that place of okayness, when we turn our attention back into the world and pick up the sheath of our selfhood in order to dance in life. We feel our connection to the whole web of Mm. inner being. And there is no separation. And how we care for our beloveds is the same as how we care for the animals and the plants and the cosmos, right?
2: directly connected to what's going on with the environment and the things that we can do uh Starting off with the most one would think insignificant things
1: exactly
2: um but uh yeah highly highly important on every level that's a whole other conversation yeah actually yep yeah.
1: um
2: but i uh I th- one of the things you bring up and and you talk you i think you you mentioned it you know around the witness, right yeah i mean I think that's uh well i Talk about it myself all the time within the mindfulness context of, uh, like we have a, a course going on now, Ramdas, Ramdas and friends actually course called the Yoga. Ramdas is Yoga of Heartfulness, right? And uh, we developed this course. It you know started out to be okay, Bhakti Yoga. Bhakti Yoga. It's too, you know it's too bound into some tradition that is not us now kind of a thing but what's the reality Ramdas is exemplifies you know giving a shit about other people just start right there yep you know and you we all those of us that met him and even those of us that didn't even through a talk you can tell the warmth the honesty the caring the kindness the uh he would pay attention to you Yep. and if somebody else tried to distract him, he would get pissed at them. You know? Yeah. Oh, he's tired. He's got to move. I have stories and upon stories of me doing the wrong thing when he wanted to just hang with people. You know? Yeah. Being Aww. trying to be a producer with him, uh, but uh, yeah, he he did. But but then people, we have a whole chat thing going. Yeah, uh, I mean a forum where people can talk to each other about you know. The different talking points from the uh, course. And people were going, okay, well, you know, in certain, uh, that heartfulness in certain circumstances is it's really not hard to connect with. But it's the day to day life when you're in your quote unquote grind, which makes life seem like not that fun, but it just everybody knows what we're talking about. How do we bring it in then? How do we maintain the um, the depth at which one would want to be at where it's not so ephemeral? It's not when it's easy to do, it's okay. But when it's not, it's not okay. And so what we bring up is, and what I would tell anybody, is mindfulness. Until you get interior, I mean, so obviously... You can do the "Who Am I?" Ramana Maharshi's practice that will get you into the right place of being able to be heartful, but uh, but witness, and this is something that was very important. Uh, Ramdas, especially in the beginning days, talked about and not the judgy mind witness, but the loving awareness witness. And yeah, you talk about it because you you've uh, you know you've really. Uh, I think, uh, explicated it quite well.
1: Well, two things come up for me. One is that that was actually the um, the heart of the conversation that Ram Das and I had. He really understood, like in self-history, there's these three realms, the self and source or no self, and then the witness. And he was really curious what this witness realm was. And until he felt clear that it was equivalent to the "I am loving" awareness that he was pointing towards, um, he was reticent to to give it his thumbs up. Right. Um, mm. And mm-hmm. so when we started, and and this is the beauty, I think, of these times is that one of the things, and you I'm sure can relate to this as a teacher and a guide, one of the things we're being called to do is define our terms really well, find a language that really can communicate to others, the certain states or realms that we're pointing towards or capacities or traits. And so when we talk about the witness and we talk about this capacity to, I call it sacred multitasking, right? To be in the grind and also to be in the witness to do both at the same time is something we cultivate through practice. And that's the beauty of practice. It's not that practice is something in and of itself to attain perfection at it's in service to showing up in the grind in good ways and Ram Das's first book points so clearly to that in that the title is not Be Here Now. The title is Remember, mm. Be Here Now. And so when we're in the grind, if we can just remember, oh, I'm in the grind. In that moment, just that, that, that awareness of it. Then I say to my students, whatever tools you have in your toolbox right there to help you come back to loving awareness use it and I recommend you have more than one tool in that toolbox to use. So let's find different tools and let's build you a really, you know, sufficient toolbox to handle the grindiest of the grinds.
2: <laughs> the grimiest of the grinds. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there are so many methods, that, which is wonderful, but certainly mindfulness, which includes witness, development of awareness, spaciousness um, is a huge tool because you can, well, it's wonderful to be able to see the self-motivated, very selfish uh, motivations that we have, that we carry on and that's the grind really. Yeah. It's not what we have to do to pay our bills and, you know, fulfill all our work uh, the responsibilities home life all of that that's not the grind the grind is is getting lost yeah absolutely and wound up yeah yeah you know it's cool uh you talk about uh something i've been talking to people about all sorts of different people which you know it's one that's the wonderful thing about a podcast you get to talk to different people and certainly neuroscience in the last number of years has been uh you know a wonderful subject to talk to people about but he only need to say I, I really think only one thing needs to be communicated and it it gives us um hope wise hope as roshi halifax would say uh and that is the um the fact that change can happen in those in neurons okay in your whatever
1: neuroplasticity
2: it can happen i mean they're proving that out yeah and that should give everyone a little bit of hope cuz many people go well you know i'm not going to change from well you don't exactly your personality isn't going to change true but your relationship with everything you come into contact is definitely going to change yeah you know and uh and really Sarah, it, it just points to thinking outside of oneself. I mean, the truth is, and that's why Ramdas. well, we got the thing from Maharaji, love, serve, remember. And the serve part uh, is, boy, it's not just going to help whoever you are serving. It, it, here's the key. It doesn't just help the, the other person or situation it helps you enormously because in the doing of it, you suddenly are like not thinking about yourself for a minute even. You know how valuable that is?
1: Yeah, Yeah. I love that. I love the neuroplasticity. I'm a geek about the neuroscience as well and... Mm -hmm really feel like what you said earlier about making more space it's not necessarily that our personalities change and those neural pathways don't continue to fire but we make space for Mm. other neural pathways to come online the ones that are able to witness the ones that are already there and then all of a sudden we have a new capacity to behave in new ways and to believe and think in new and feel even in new ways yeah and I love that. And I love, I don't know if you're familiar with theories of adult development um, and Robert mm. Keegan's work out of Harvard. It's, it's beautiful, beautiful mm. um, study. But the, the essence of it is that in order for us to grow outside, out of, a let's say, a developmental stage, Um, We see kids do it naturally. They go from crawling to walking to, but as adults, we have the capacity to grow as well. And the key, he says, to activating that development is our ability to be self-aware. Which is mindfulness in the more spiritual term. And there's something about that to all of a sudden go, whoa, to be able to look at yourself um, without becoming self absorbed. It's not that kind of looking. It's the kind of looking like, whoa, who's looking? Yeah. Right. You know, yeah.
2: Just so there's get a there. lot
1: of evidence. Yeah. There's a lot of tools, a lot of evidence, a lot of frameworks and languages for what Maharaji was pointing us towards. Yeah. No, you know? absolutely. It's so beautiful. We're so lucky.
2: You have one method here that's probably my favorite thing. I'm going to steal it for you from okay. you.
1: Okay. Go. Love it.
2: No, it's sit you've already mentioned it. Sit down and shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: simple, right? So hard, but so that's simple. That's like
2: be, you know how be here now came about?
1: Mm-mm.
2: Uh Ramdas was with Bhagavan Das in India in the in the uh, Land Rover, and he was taking Ram Dass. he wanted to see his guru, and Ram Dass was just going along for the ride. It was a long ride from Kathmandu all the way. So uh, Ram Dass kept going on about, he had a lot of stories to go on about all the psychedelic experimental stuff and Leary and everything, and he'd go on and on. And then finally Bhagwan Das said, can you just be here now for a minute? Hey, I love it. That's how that came about. Yep. You know. Can, can you, you just sit just, down and shut, shut up for up. a
1: minute? Yeah. yeah, totally. I love it. Is
2: that how it came up? How did it get up?
1: That's Sam. Come That's to... totally oh, yeah? Sam. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah.
2: so it's a good thing. I wouldn't shouldn't be mad at him.
1: No, he he said some good things. Is he know, still just, with
2: us, by the way? He
1: is. Uh-huh. He is. Uh-huh. Yeah, I haven't had contact with him in almost two decades, mm. but I suspect he's still doing his thing, and um, I have a lot of love and respect for. What he provided for me and uh, and my own development. So yeah, we can absolutely. assess his psychological well being at another time.
2: Yeah, well, it's not yeah. even our business whatsoever, your Good. business more particularly.
1: Good point.
2: Yeah. Good uh, point. Um, yeah. Mm. That, uh, by the way, uh, these books we will have you links so you can uh, purchase them thank you but um, um everybody out there yeah the the memoir i, mean, I love memoirs myself mm. and this one um you've had such a, a profoundly varied life and gone through so much stuff i think a lot of people will relate um and and certainly you're point of view as a woman is very self-evident in terms of what you have, uh, the experiences you've had directly, um, the relationships that you've had. I think there's a way that you're embodying something that's really important for uh, the female gender. Whoever identifies that way, by the way, I'm not saying anything different. Yep. I hear you. I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're, we're almost out of time, but there's one last thing I want you to talk about. Um, I think because um, you, you talk about Ramana Maharshi and, and self-inquiry through the mind, which again is a very powerful, I don't want to um, suggest because it wasn't something that grabbed me and that was back in the day when I was young. And uh, it's uh, very powerful. And some of the things that Sarah's talking about here are absolutely rooted in in that concept um, of really finding your true self. And um, then you have what you talked about still being moved, which en- engages self-inquiry through the body. Talk about that. And this, this is something... Yeah, I think there's people out there that can really use this in a way that you know maybe they can't get to this you know the intellectual yoga of self inquiry. Thank you for the question.
1: Um, one of the things Ramdas said when he decided to endorse this work and and. And he said, and that's written on the back of the Selfistry book, is he said, you know, that Sarah is a trustworthy guide. And I love that word because I feel like guide really speaks to or mentor speaks to what I offer. And in the still being moved practice, what I'm offering and and creating the space for is for people to explore the realms of the witness, of source or no self and our, our multifaceted selfhood through the body so there's a uh the the room is created for that practice and there's music that's curated to support that practice i couple it with the rigorous more masculine cognitive sit down and shut up practice as well so i encourage people i guide people into both because i feel like through both of them we can have a real deep understanding and a real deep and heartened embodiment of the complexity of what we are as selves and no selves and the essential simplicity of it. So some people through the somatic practice will really find that okayness realm so much easier Mm. and so much quicker than those of us who had the capacity and the discipline to sit down and shut up for hours on end for days on end. Um, so I, I love that it is kind of a more feminine, you were speaking to women, you know, and how my my gender and my experience as a woman in this life really informs my work and my guidance. Um, I feel like the still being moved practice and self history in general is a more feminine approach to awakening to the truth of who we are. And I have a very strong masculine self inside as well. And I love... Silent meditation practice and austerities, and Hmm. you know that as well. So, those are you know again different tools in the toolbox. Um, plus, still being moved is so much fun, and it's Hmm. a community thing. Like, we do do it it with other people. So I we find a room, a big yeah. enough room where we can move around in, and we dedicate one portion of the room for the self, which is usually the middle of the room, and the periphery of the room is the witness space, and then we have a space that's dedicated to source or no self. And then I curate a playlist of music that takes an arc of a journey that can activate and so I put the music on, and then you just take your body through the realms and see what happens. So, you know, some people say, oh, you're dancing, but it's not really dancing, it's moving. It's taking the soma through the realms and Mm. and observing and feeling and emoting and laughing and crying and whatever wants to happen, happens. And then we unpack it. We, We harvest it and we talk about, well, what happened when you took your body in the witness realm and observed source and self from there? What did you notice? What did you feel? Um, And what happened when you were in the self realm and acting out a certain emotion or a certain feeling sense? Um, What happened when you were there? Could you feel source in the room? Could you feel the witness in the room? And somehow it provides the conditions for the embodiment of it Mm -hmm. um, in a totally different way. Um, And it's taken from some of the listeners might be familiar with Gabrielle Roth's work. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Soul motion, or so I did a lot of work in those lineages as well. Um, that informs mm-hmm. the still be moved creation yeah. of that practice.
2: And there's uh, someone named Suleika who does wonderful work in this same vein, out of Santa Fe. Actually, awesome. it's Been part yeah. of our New Mexico. Oh,
1: sensor. I love that. Yeah.
2: yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sarah.
1: Thank you, Raghu. It's a pleasure to hang out with you for a while.
2: Well, I've been hanging out with you for a couple of days, actually, unbeknownst to you.
1: Oh, that's true. That's (laughs) very true. And I have been with you listening to your other podcast conversations. Uh Super sweet. Thank
2: you. Uh, As I said, everybody uh, in the show notes will have links to these couple of books so that you can... uh, What about website?
1: Selfhistory.com.
2: Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Yeah. And you do other things like people can gather together somewhere where you're doing these things, right? Yeah.
1: I do things all over, all over the world, different okay. times, different places, private groups,
2: retreats. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, th- yeah. take advantage. Sarah yeah. lives now. Oh, you said you're moving, but you're in Marin. We're
1: you know? in, well, we're in the East Bay and we're moving to Marin.
2: Oh, you know, that's it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Very good. So everybody, um, this is Mind Rolling. And go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Mind Rolling. You'll see the show notes on this show and the links and everything else to get you uh, in touch with Sarah. And again, Sarah, thank you for being thank here. Thank you, Raghu.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
2: Yeah. All right, everybody, we'll see you next week. Take care, Monday. everybody. <laughs> Bye-bye.
1: Bye.